Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. This week and every week, we celebrate women and women entrepreneurs in particular. Increasingly, female founders are launching new and innovative ventures with growing support from investor communities that for too long have been male-biased. Don't believe me? Look at the numbers. From wage inequality to promotions to venture funding and social stigmas, women have had an uphill battle. This situation is particularly depressing in the poorest countries and among the least educated. Patriarchal societies are alive and well, and for a woman to succeed financially or professionally, it takes a whole nother level of luck, grit, and tenacity. Money helps too. And in markets the world over, women have had a harder time securing credit or receiving funding than their male counterparts. One Singapore-based startup hopes to make a difference. Lucy, a self-described neobank, plans to provide the tools, network, and eventually the credit to help entrepreneurial women succeed. I spoke with co-founder and CEO Debbie Watkins. She spent years working with women in poverty-stricken markets before pulling together a group of inspirational women and backers to offer their sisters in the field a helping hand. I'm also pleased to announce that beginning this week, Inside Asia has a new sponsor. Quilt AI is a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. Quilt works with amazing organizations, including Amazon, Twitter, the Gates Foundation, and the World Bank. But what got my attention is their pro bono work in gender equality and climate action, giving time and money to causes they care about in service to the planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Now my conversation. I'm here with Debbie Watkins. We are going to be talking about women's rights in Asia. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up on March 8th is the 55-year anniversary of International Women's Day, established in 1975. That's a long time ago. Um, Still, women are fighting for inclusion. Nowhere is the problem worse than in the developing world. Why? Partly, I guess, it's culturally, and partly because women have tended historically to be the homekeepers and homemakers, uh, much more so in developing countries where there are less services and conveniences to actually help them. So perhaps, you know, we could be looking back to when my mother was young, let's say, um, and, you know, before the invention of the automatic washing machine and all of those things that save so much labour, a a lot of women are still very much stuck in that cycle of having to work extremely hard on general day-to-day housekeeping. Mm. Um, and, and traditionally, this has been the women's role. And so it's it's given them much less opportunity to actually break out of that mold and, and to really show their worth. With, with so much to gain and so little to lose, why aren't governments more involved in clearing the way for women in some of these markets? That's a jolly good question. Um, I'm not sure that I'm in the position to answer that, but I mean, we can look at the broader thing and and say, um, you know, overall, why is... Uh, why are companies and business not more open? And that's the area that we're particularly interested in to say, you know, why is it that that the majority of um, 
large businesses are headed or run by men. I mean, you know, some of the statistics, there are more CEOs in the world called John than there are female CEOs. Mm. Um, and so I think that this is this is certainly where we're looking at is how do we actually sort of break that mold at the, the company and small business level. So, so companies, the pro- profit sector is the one that's going to break this down. You don't hold out for the possibility that governments or NGOs are going to be able to push it much further than they have to date. Um, I think they've been doing a great job. Obviously, legislation is extremely important, and we have seen changes now in in countries where legislation has been introduced to actually sort of enforce more equality. But it does, of course, come down to mindset Mm. as well. Um, And this is mindset of uh, corporates and business in general, which have often historically been the old boys network and probably still are at at board level in many cases. And so, you know, there are certain things that can be done and have been done to break that mold, but it does come down to overall mindsets. Yeah, it's not like we don't know what to do. I mean, not a year passes when the World Bank, Asia Development Bank, um, you know, UN, somebody issues a new report outlining exactly what can and should be done to mm-hmm. offer equality and access. Yet year in, year out, you know, companies and and are, are seem to uh, not they acknowledge they pay lip service, but I don't see the big changes. Um, I'm just wondering from your experience and your movement around the region, around the world, and living in developing markets. What are some good examples of breakthroughs occurring, just to give us a flavor of what's possible uh, in terms of of access for women? Um, I think it's about partly about access, but also about women having the confidence in themselves that they can do it. Mm. Um, And there's just a small story here, but uh, it's it's slightly digressing. But um, a long, long time ago, um, I had a when my kids were young, we had a, a live-in um, helper who was from Cambodia because we were living in Cambodia at the time. And we were renovating some of our house. And I asked her if she wanted to help sanding the floor with an electric sander. And she looked at me quite in shock and was like, well, can I do this? And I'm like, it's a power tool. You don't need strength. The, the tool does it. It's got all the power. So she put on a mask and I gave her this thing and she was off. <laughs> And, and it was just such a kind of revelation to her that this wasn't something that was purely the domain of men. I mean, this is one small example. Yeah. But, you know, and we're, we're seeing this in many different cases, um, in many different situations. Some of the stories that we're profiling on our Lucy website, for example, has been really looking at what we like to call the extraordinary, ordinary, mm. everyday women. Mm. Um, so this is people who aren't rich or famous or whatever, but doing things that kind of break the mold. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons we've put those on there is to really give other people inspiration so, so and sort of show that these kind of things are possible and these are not the domain solely of men. So, so you're saying it's mindset, um, enabling women with the idea they can do it, they can, it, it, they're, uh, they're, there's nothing preventing them from starting a business as long as they have um, at least the foundational education or just a basic background or some fundamental understanding of business. Why is it that they haven't been encouraged to take that on? Is it just because um, they've been stuck in the house providing those those services, being the mother? Uh, or, or is it because the education system or the society or 
perhaps even religious orders that they may be associated with uh, haven't fully encouraged that? Um, I think there's a combination of things. I mean, someone asked me the other day about education and school, and I mean, it's still seen that, let's say, tech is is a male domain, mm. right? Or, I mean, STEM and so forth as well, we're seeing as being very much men are or young men are favoured or feel women feel that that's a male kind of thing. And so, but then you come on to a little bit further and, you know, once women start going into the workplace, if they're in companies that are still very much sort of dominated by men, there's there's still, even with legislation, this kind of subtext and and kind of intentionally or otherwise subliminal messages that the the women are somehow inferior and the men are the ones who are going to succeed and and get pushed forwards and i think this constant sort of dripping that that we get um Mm. is is kind of dimming women's flames i think right you know is kind of as i say it's a little drip 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 thing but kind of making women often feel that they're not good enough and that in order to be successful you have to be more aggressive Mm, in mm. some way is the answer entrepreneurship in other words if you're not receiving the um attention or the promotions within the corporate world the only obvious answer is break out do it yourself is it frustration which driving some women to be entrepreneurs I guess it could be. Um, I mean, I don't say it's the only way, of course, but but the other alternative is to try and break this pervasive mindset, which seems to be really difficult to yeah. break, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, um, and perhaps part of this is, is, I wouldn't say fear in some kind of way, but I think, um, you know, Michelle Obama, when she was asked about what it was like to be in a room with sort of smart and powerful men, she said, well, you realize very quickly that most of them aren't that smart mm. and, and and i think you know this is this is a key thing it's the uh, there was an article in the harvard business review as well that was talking about the difference between competence and confidence mm. right and mm. people tend to value confidence over competence mm. and what men tend to be much better at is being sort of confident to the point of being arrogant but this seems to be valued much more so it's upbringing this is this is nature not nurture or this is nurture not nature and therefore you know from an early age um, it sounds to me like we need to go back to the root right at the very beginning within the family system you know can women be powerful can they stand up and 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 young girls be given the same opportunities encouraged the same way so that they can go out into the world and and with that exuberance be able to garner support or uh, for for whatever they're planning to do, whether it's uh, in some competition or if it's starting a business or if it's just doing well in school? Yes, I think so. And I, I think, you know, there seems to be this kind of turning point somewhere. You know, when you're young, let's say under 12, you still believe that everything is possible and you can get out there and conquer the world. And mm. then something kind of kicks in in culture or society that starts sort of dimming your sort of view that anything is possible and I think it's continuing to nurture that uh, as well that's that's really important particularly perhaps it's in those teenage years um, you know where where people are developing into young adults and all of the insecurities start creeping in and and getting fed so um, yeah I mean I think there there is a sort of school of thought to say well you know if you can't 
fix the system that's broken, then get out there and create a new system. Mm. And so perhaps that's where the kind of entrepreneurship of sort of side of things can come in as well to say, well, you know, <clears throat> rather than trying to be more like one of the boys in this restrictive, misogynistic corporate world, mm. you know, just go out there and, and find your own path instead. So it sounds like what you're saying is that it's perceptions from the marketplace that women in not being confident enough may may not be worthy of receiving support or financing or access. Are you saying that the change needs to occur from the corporate or from the commercial perspective in order to give women a fair shot at receiving what they need? Yeah, and I think this, again, goes back to this, the, the competence versus confidence thing, right? I mean, most of the VCs in the world are run by guys, right? Statistically, it's kind of shown that people tend to, or venture capitalists tend to invest in people who are more like them, mm. right? People that they like, that they can relate to, rather than whether this is a viable business that's got a decent model. Um, and, you know, for this reason as well, um, another statistic that I do like to quote is, I think 2019, if you added together the number of women-owned businesses that got venture capital investment altogether and the total amount that they received, um, it was still $1.5 billion less than SoftBank invested in WeWork alone. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I mean, it says it speaks volumes to the problem, doesn't it? And and it also, you know, this is is the same issue with hiring. So when companies are hiring people, oftentimes I like and prefer to hire people who look, talk and act like me uh, and therefore are more comfortable with it. Yet all the research points to diversity as being an empowering and an important aspect of any workplace. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the same would be true when it comes to financing new ventures, isn't it? It's everything. I mean, it's affinity bias, isn't it? It's it's the way people judge, you know, whether people speak like them, whether they look like them, whether they dress like them, whether they behave like them. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this this is, it's much more of a, an emotional decision than a practical one, as you quite rightly say, even when the statistics are actually saying completely the opposite. Mm. I mean, if you look at, there are some statistics from the Boston Consulting Group, um, which which show as well that women-owned businesses, if given the same opportunities and access to finance as male-owned businesses, tend to be 2.5 times more successful. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all. I, I lived for a time in Africa, and I remember um, the small lending uh, opportunities were there, mostly through NGOs, um, giving to to women communities who were doing things from handicrafts uh, to, to agricultural extension work. Um, and every time, their uh, their ability to repay those loans mm-hmm. was significantly higher and better than the men. And this is something that hasn't changed in 25, 35, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, we know statistically that they are good credit risk, yet still banks, lending organizations, VCs resist. You're saying it's primarily psychological and social. Yes, I think it, it, that's the only probably reason I can come up with. And, and there was actually somebody who who gave me some uh, information that really backed this up. It was it was um, some some information that I read about a bank in India. Um, who was giving higher value loans to male-owned businesses than they were to the female-owned equivalents. And the reason that they gave was that they felt that men were more risk-taking and women were too risk-averse, and therefore they ought to give more to men. Um, 
which seems to be a bit backwards, really, right? But they kind of viewed this as you need to be a risk taker to be a successful businessman. Mm. Um, whereas, of course, what we know is that sort of being balanced and, and slightly more risk averse and being sort of thoughtful and, and uh, competent Mm. about what you do is is much more likely to result in success. So so I'm I'm really interested because I came here to talk to you about in some ways the micro uh, financing uh, the technical platforms the mobile phone apps uh, access to 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 capital uh, that can enable and allow women entrepreneurs in developing markets to succeed. But here we are talking about some of the problems that exist beyond their control. It's really about um, a societal issue or institutional issues which are preventing access or preventing the opportunities for women. So so how do you plan, and we're going to talk about Lucy and your organization in a minute, mm-hmm. but, but it sounds like it's as much about informing um, and educating people as it is providing the tools to access finance. What would you say to that? Yeah, and and what the 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 way that we're seeing it is that we're not going to be able to inform and educate as many people as we'd like, um, particularly those who are the naysayers, who are dripping, um, say on 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 women's flames. So, mm. our focus is more about how do we actually empower the women mm. and give them not just the financial tools that they need, but the the sort of more complementary holistic solution that actually gives them that confidence as well mm. um, and the belief in their own abilities so that they can take this forward. Mm. So courseware that comes along with it, educational materials that help them figure out how to position, how to argue, how to build a marketing plan, how to how to be more aggressive in the marketplace, perhaps. I mean, where where does it begin and end in terms of what you try to help women understand in order to be successful in business? Yeah, and you know, this kind of partly comes from my experience in developing countries as well, because I've worked in more than 35 countries from like DR, Congo to Pakistan to Papua New Guinea. Um, But it has been shown already at at the microfinance level that combining access to finance with skills training, um, both of them are beneficial and useful in isolation but when you combine them at the same time the sort of um, it's the sort of two plus two is 146 kind of combination Um, so combining both of these at the same time can actually then really help people to sort of go stratospheric and so um, our approach is is kind of on both of those side of things is firstly the the tailored financial services which are really uh, customer-centric and designed to overcome the particular pain points that different groups of women have at different stages in their growth, mm. together with, as you said, things like training and so forth. Mm. But a bit more than that as well, because um, it's it's also getting inspiration from other people who've trod that path before them. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that we very much want to do is for providing sort of these inspirational stories that people can say, well, this woman was once where I am now and she did it. And so I can do it. Heroes. Yes. But Mm. the everyday heroes as well. Mm. You know, you can kind of look at um, Michelle Obama or Angelina Jolie. And and that's not someone necessarily you can relate to because they're, they're so much sort of removed from you. But if we look at somebody that we're profiling, for example, right now is a woman in Nevada. 
um, who set up her own female plumbing company. Yeah, Nevada being a developing country. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it's but it's the whole point is it's not just a developing country yeah. thing, right? right. It's 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 everywhere. Mm. And the point is, this is someone who has kind of bucked the trend and said, mm. "Well, I'm I'm going to do a, a an apprenticeship in plumbing," and now uh, she's representing women in plumbing. Right. Um, but the point is, it's possible. Mm. Right. And and looking at people who have come from nowhere or being just a, a regular everyday person and actually have sort of strived to get where they are mm. um, and telling their stories, I think, kind of gives more confidence to women that they can do it as well. Mm. Um, one of my heroes is uh, Sarah Blakely from Spanx. Um, mm. Tell uh, that story. Yeah. Sorry. Mm. No, tell that story. Yeah. yeah. Well, just I mean, if you, if you look at her posts on LinkedIn, mm. um, she's got some great examples because she she's brutal and raw and honest in the kind of rampant self doubt that she has from time to time. Mm. And again, it's someone who's built her business up from nothing, um, started out in her garage or her kitchen or wherever it was. But but she still has those times when she's trying to juggle kids and, and everything else that's going on and just wakes up in the morning sometimes and has to really push herself to get out of bed. Mm. And having having people like that as role models that it is tough and it's it's always tough and other people are having these things and that's mm. okay. Mm. Um, but you can carry on. Yeah, it keeps it real. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, so it's it's really just Keeping these, say, keeping these things in, in perspective, but having other people tell their stories. It's like, you know, you have up days and down days, mm. and you do, but you, you carry on. It, it was hard enough for women entrepreneurs uh, in developing markets this part of the world prior to COVID. Since COVID, it seems like it's a whole nother level of complexity. A lot of women have had to give up on their dreams and their plans. Others have had to return to the household, to tend to ailing uh, parents or, or family members. Um, it seems like the economic opportunity, which was rising and appearing for them, has diminished to some degree what's your impression yeah and again I think I think it's not just developing countries it's everywhere mm. um, statistically I think if we look at the UK or the US or Singapore um, the number of women who have lost their jobs has been more than men across the board mm. or the ones who have had, perhaps had a choice and the women's d- decided that she's going to go back into looking after the household um, and that's what we're seeing this is not just a developing world problem. It's yeah. it's an everywhere problem. It's yeah. not just a low-income problem. It's an everybody problem. It, it's at different levels, but the problems are basically the same. Yeah. With so many women in the workplace uh, when the economy is going well and now being furloughed or laid off, in your impression and from your conversations, do you see more women now open and interested in setting up their own businesses, entering the gig economy, not going back to a full-time job? Yes, I think definitely. There's been some very interesting stories recently about Singapore um, and a number of women that have done exactly that, particularly those that are in tourism and, and things like this, where really the, everything is obviously completely dried up. Um, and I mean, that's something that I'm, I kind of see as being really quite interesting because, of course, what this means is that there's a move, a shift away from formal employment, jobs for life, kind of situation much more into the micro entrepreneurship and the gig economy side of things um, and 
what occurred to me when I saw this was that actually this is now the developed world mimicking the developing world. Mm. Explain that. Well, the developing world has always been very reliant on microenterprise because there was never any formal employment. Mm. Right? So people have had to scrap and, and fight and claw themselves up with their sort by their fingernails, if you like, mm. um, to keep their family healthy, to keep themselves moving forwards. Um, and it's really been very much kind of day to day and, and people have had to be fighters because there was no alternative. Um, and what we're seeing now is, as I say, is, is a move to this in developing countries, which I in developed countries, but it's always been there in developing countries. And I kind of find this quite interesting as somebody who's worked a lot in developing countries. Um, and one thing that made me kind of think as well was like, what can the developed world now learn from the developing one? It's always traditionally been the other way around. Mm. Mm. That, you know, the, the developed countries, the ones swanning in there and saying, well, let us teach you because we know. Mm. Um, and perhaps this could actually be a shift in mindset because it's it's for, for women now who've been used to stable, reliable jobs, actually going into more of a gig micro enterprise thing is a much more of a shock. Mm. Um, whereas for, for people in developing countries, this has just always been the way, right? right. So um, they're much more used to surviving in this kind yeah. of scenario yeah. scrappiness to yes. someone yeah yeah absolutely um, i think certainly what what does need to happen and what we would like to be doing as we move forward with lucy is to really um say give give people who are just starting out on this new journey um the tools and the confidence that they need to help them because starting from scratch is is pretty scary yeah. And you just back to your developing and developed market example, I mean, the one thing that uh, the developing world has is this tenacity uh, or this willingness to go ahead and, and, you know, look challenge in the face and go for it because what do you have to lose? Um, the thing that they lack in this part of the or in the developing parts uh, is, is really institutions that are prepared to offer them some stability or credit or banking services uh, or regulatory support. Um, these are the things that the women in the developed market have enjoyed. Enjoyed. I mean, if you were to look at, you know, certain key markets in this part of the world, Indonesia or Myanmar or Vietnam or, or Malaysia, what would be the top three challenges or opportunities that exist in order to clear the way for women entrepreneurs? I know it varies country by country, but I'm just curious what stands out for you? Um, I guess a number of things. Certainly we're seeing, if you look at statistics from the IFC, that the 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 finance gap is is huge. I think $1.6 trillion in Southeast Asia for women entrepreneurs alone. And so that goes back a little bit to what I was saying before about financial institutions not wanting to lend to women-owned businesses. Mm. Um, so I think providing that, you know, that just even small amounts in some kind of way, and I'm not talking about this very microfinance level thing. We're talking about people that have got small businesses and, and building those up. Mm -hmm. But having access to some kind of responsibly priced credit um, can make a huge difference. Um, I mean, just to quote an example here, I know of somebody um, who had a pig farm um, and they, they built a pig farm that was large enough to hold for, I think, 10 pigs, mm. but they only had four because they couldn't afford to buy the other six. Right. 
right? And so, you know, again, this is at the very micro kind of level, but just getting a credit for the six pigs, mm. right, can make a massive difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the challenges that I have seen is that a lot of standard financial institutions have very rigorous and, and um, unpersonal, impersonal approaches to giving credit. So yeah. they're really going to look at collateral or right. regular incomes or guarantors or yeah. whatever, right? Um, and Chicken of the egg. Yeah. So you have six pigs, but in order for us to finance you, you have to have 10. But I don't have 10 pigs. Well, if I could just get financing for it, that type of thing. Yeah, but yeah. It, I mean, but as I say, I mean, I'm giving a, a kind of a bottom of the pyramid example, yeah. but this exists kind of yeah. at all levels, right? right? And so um, whoever it happens to be, it could be a, a woman here in Singapore who's building up a little, her own jewellery business from home, for example, right? The challenges here are still the same, mm. um, is that it, it can just take a small amount of, of credit from somebody that recognises that you're going to be good for it mm. um, to go further. But, you know, we're, we're not, say, credit is not the sort of only aspect of this. It's it's all of the areas. Mm. So it's, it's actually being able to plan and manage finances. It's about... Uh, the boring but necessary parts yeah. of running a business like cash flow projections, mm. right? Who knows how yeah. to do a cash flow projection? Nobody, right. really. But it's like the one of the key killers of early stage businesses right. is cash flow. Right. Balance sheet, P&Ls, just your basic kind of tools of, of running a small business. Yeah. Filing your taxes on time, yeah. right? Mm. Um, getting a decent um, employment contract for your first hire that makes it kind of clear mm. who's responsible for what, you know, all of these small things that can really make a difference. Yeah. Now, of course, the Internet has helped. Uh, you know, we have 20 years of 20, 25 years of people being able to access and learn about these things, but nothing's really consolidated or brought together, and you don't really know what to trust and what not to trust, and every market has different rules and regulations. So this brings us right to your organization, Lucy. Um, describe Lucy for us and help us understand what you're trying to achieve with this. Okay, well, I guess, I guess in a nutshell, we're a neobank, um, and everyone goes, oh, what's a neobank, right? So the the real definition of this is a financial services provider um, who's entirely digital. Um, to the customer, we are their primary account, um, but we, in line with most neobanks, don't actually have a banking license. What we do is that we partner um, with multiple different providers at the back end. Mm. Um, but everything that from the customer interaction side of things, which is the type of products that we're offering, the the way that we engage and, and um, communicate with the customer, onboarding, customer relationship management, et cetera, is all through us. Mm. Um, and so our aim is to, um, we're working with what we call entrepreneurial women. This doesn't necessarily have to be women that have a business at the moment, mm -hmm. but it can certainly be those that are thinking about starting a business or have some kind of side gig going on um, that they may want to convert into a business later on. Mm. Um, and our intention is um, to look at different groups of entrepreneurial women um, as distinct groups and to recognize their unique pain points and aspirations um, and so really seeing the world through their lens. Mm. Um, 
and then to provide them with tailored financial services and other tools that actually help them to, to grow and thrive. Um, and we're doing this all through through an app. It sounds all very resource intense. I mean, it's almost like uh, student-centered education. Every student has its own kind of curriculum or learning strategy or learning capabilities, and therefore the perfect education would revolve around the student. It sounds like you're trying to do something as well in the space of women entrepreneurs, but how do you scale to the same question? You're a startup in some ways as well. How do you all scale in order to do that effectively? Um technology uh, okay. <laughs> um, you know I mean the, the good thing now is with technology of course is that that it's it's expanding really very quickly mm. um, and there are all sorts of things now that are available that weren't available not so long ago mm. and um, so what we're able to do first of all is we're able to group women into segments which will be fairly broad. So, for example, in Singapore, our focus is on foreign domestic workers um, and particularly home-based enterprises, Mm -hmm. um, initially at least, before we move on to sort of more broad micro-entrepreneurs. I mean, we're not actually lending here in Singapore. Mm. Um, What we're aiming to do, particularly for the foreign domestic workers, is to help them, first of all, with their money management overall. Um, And this includes things like um, reducing cost of of remittances, for example, but also we're enabling them to actually set up savings pockets with goals attached so that they can actually keep track of things more accurately. But yes, ultimately our strategy beyond Singapore is to move to the home countries, first of all, of the domestic workers, and to look at empowering those little businesses back home. Debbie, it's a, it's a huge space if you yeah. think about it, right? And and it's very ambitious. And I, it must be for you, it's deselecting as much as selecting what you do next, I suspect. Um, but but if you look out and, and think about this, to what degree will partnering be important to you when it comes to actually extending your services and your reach? It will be vital. Um, and for a number of reasons. As I mentioned, the, the, the neo-bank approach is that we don't have our own banking license. And so every country that we go to, we would have partnerships with financial institutions at the back end on a kind of white label co-branding basis. Um, This has actually been a model that's been successful in other countries. There's quite a number of neobanks in the US, for example, that are doing exactly this. They've partnered with some of your small local community banks, Mm. um, and they're kind of leveraging that relationship um, to deliver to a a broader segment. Um, What I know from the countries that I've worked in before is that there are many banks who are Um, complacent or scared of dealing with micro entrepreneurs um, and don't want to have to learn everything about a completely new market segment, Mm. particularly when the the sort of cost benefit ratio doesn't stack up quite as nicely for them as it would do with having fewer larger customers, right? But Mm. on the other hand, if we were able to bring them a consolidated loan book, Um, where the non-performing loan status is significantly lower than average because these are all women, Mm. Um, you know, that this is something that's very appealing to banks, right? And so that's kind of where we see the value would be Mm. is that it needs to be a win-win-win, right? So a win for us 
um, a win for the bank, but most importantly, of course, a win for the the end customer. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what you're looking to provide is via mobile. Um, and, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's the access points. Everybody has a smartphone these days, or even in some of the more rural um, and, and undeveloped parts of, of this part of the world and elsewhere. Yet this idea of, for instance, mobile providers being that neobank, you know, because they have the access point, they have the gateway, um, they know what the, the bill, if they're prepaid or postpaid, they have some sense of who their customer is, mm-hmm. and therefore would be in a prime position to be able to start to offer microfinancing or, or microcredit or whatever you call it. But none have really done it well. So why can you do it if they can't or won't? I think it comes down to business models, and I've seen a lot of examples of mobile financial services run by telcos. Um, I used to say probably as long ago as maybe 10 years that there were like 150 uh, mobile financial service providers globally, and arguably 149 of them had been a resounding failure. Um, And so, you know, those that have been successful have been very successful, but they've been focused very much on transaction fees mm. as being their model um, and and kind of reducing churn, I think, as well. So it's been very, if you think about business motivations of a telco is to keep people with that telco, mm. right? And mm. so if you look at M-Pesa, for example, in Ka- in Kenya, which is, I think, the still probably the most successful um, mobile wallet out there run by a telco, they're not interoperable with any other telco wallets mm. because they're all about keeping the customers with them. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's what we've seen as being the kind of thing that's prevented in many cases that going further is that this kind of mine, you know, I'm hanging on to the, this is my customer, mm. whereas we're not seeing it from that perspective right. at all. And actually, intentionally at the back end, we've designed our tech platform to enable us to have relationships with multiple financial institutions. Mm. So we could partner with three if we wanted in one particular country. Mm. There's Mm. nothing to prevent that from happening. Um, Our focus is really on, say, being very customer-centric and really understanding what it is that makes our customers tick and what their pains and their aspirations Mm. are. Mm. You you mentioned beyond banks. What other corporate participation might be helpful or conducive to helping women entrepreneurs in this part of the world succeed? Um, Certainly what we're doing right now is we're talking to a number of NGOs. Um, So the people that are supporting foreign domestic workers, for example, because we've we've both got the same interests at heart though which is kind of putting helpers more in control of their own destiny and i think that's the most important thing here um certainly as well because uh, we recognize that that this holistic approach is is really important i've i'm partnering now with somebody who's been developing um micro training um they've been very focused very much on um refugees actually they're from the Netherlands um, so they've been focused on women who are coming in from from other countries mm. um, and we're looking um, where they're now developing some of these training materials mm. um, based upon these really deep insights that they've had on what what women ne- actually need to give them confidence and skills and mm. so forth to proceed so we see we see um, strategic key partnerships here of people that have really got 
deep understanding of a particular area because what we need to do um, is to make sure that everything we are providing is relevant mm. and is is high quality. Yeah, yeah. So micro education would be in the form of short video clips or anything somebody could access across a mobile device or uh, insights or networks uh, of people. I, I, it sounds like you're building lots of this into your platform. Yeah. Um, and, and it sounds like it's going to need to be quite organic. It's almost like those that get involved will then direct, you know, what type of applications and capabilities you bring to bear. Yes, and this comes back to this listening to our customers, and this is something, I mean, I've personally got a lot of background in this, um, is very much uh, my background previously has been a lot in sort of being very customer-centric in designing uh, financial services and technology mm. tools. Mm. And um, so continuing to listen and get feedback of like what's relevant, what's not relevant, what's easy to follow and what's not easy to follow is, is going to be really um, very important. Yeah. Debbie, wonderful work. Thank you so much for spending time with us. We wish you every success. Thank you very much indeed for the invitation. That was my conversation with Debbie Watkins, co-founder and CEO of Lucy, an early-stage Singapore-based neobank looking to serve women entrepreneurs in Asia and beyond. It's a fitting topic for our program where we look to business leaders, investors, and thought leaders who rally to the cause of greater corporate purpose. Inclusion is a key aspect of any progressive agenda, and I find it deeply concerning that while access for women is improving, it isn't happening nearly fast enough. We know, and data confirms it, that diversity is a plus for any organization at any level. The amount of lip service paid to women in the workplace is considerable, but how much change have we really seen in the past half century? Occasionally, there's the breakthrough moment, like in Norway in 2003, where all publicly owned and publicly listed companies were required to increase female board representation to 40% within three years. It was controversial, but effective. Today, it's a non-issue. Most other countries still lag far behind, and no amount of persuading and cajoling has made a difference. The old boys' club continues to live large. Women entrepreneurs face similar hurdles. While it's true the gap between male and female access to credit has shrunk, there are still barriers to receiving financial support commensurate with their needs. In some less developed markets, women are faced with ownership and asset restrictions. Without assets, there's no collateral. And without collateral, there's no loan. Government, in many instances, is in the best position to fix these problems, but, you guessed it, patriarchy lives there too. In some corners, venture capital has stepped up, providing capital where banks can't or won't. In the developed world, we've seen a steady rise in the size and number of investments in women-owned businesses in recent years. Unfortunately, the rise fell off a cliff in Q4 last year relative to investments in male-owned startups. There's evidence to suggest that when things get tough, people revert to old habits and belief systems. Debbie speaks to this in the course of our discussion. She feels strongly that as long as financial institutions are dominated by men, bias, unconscious or not, will continue to erode female access to capital. It overshadows a social-psychological conundrum that still hasn't played itself out, and it goes like this. On the one hand, women are being encouraged to be more aggressive, act more confident, and push for what is rightfully theirs. That's the kind of energy that investors and bankers like to see. On the other hand, businesses are being told to act more empathetically, treat stakeholders with greater respect, and honor obligations to people and planet in order to be more purpose-driven. 
It's not that the behaviors most desired by investors cancels out the ability to behave more ethically. It's that the system appears to be asking women to act more like men in order to get what they already deserve. And what's that? Respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. I was always told that respect is something that's earned. Well, in this week, in honor of women, I say they've earned it. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Inside Asia. If you like what you hear, please share our program with friends and colleagues. We're entering our third season with over 170 episodes produced and available to you free of charge. Each week, we plan to introduce a new topic or trend that shows how innovation and corporate purpose can align and profitably. Prefer reading to listening? Then subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. Visit us at www.insideasiaadvisors.com. Leave your name and email address and start receiving weekly updates that highlight key points from our discussions, provide links to additional insights and articles, and reference earlier podcasts on related subjects. Want to start a discussion? Leave us a message on any of our LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram pages. Until next week, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.